This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Next week, the Mizzou International Composers Festival takes place at various venues on campus and at the Missouri Theatre. It is a chance to hear the work of young contemporary composers from around the world, as well as one of the most celebrated new music ensembles, Alarm Will Sound. The week-long festival culminates with a concert of eight world premieres, and although I don't always find the works easily accessible to my pop-preferring ears, I love the challenge that the soundscapes present and how they encourage me to listen differently. Plus, they are world premieres, so that's always exciting. On this week's show, we are going to visit with three of the composers at the festival, one established guest composer and two of the resident composers. Plus, in the final act of the show, we drop in on a theatre production that might have the most recognisable line in the world of theatre. And so, off we go. In the beginning... There was Puerto Rican folk music, her mum's coterie of drag queen friends and formal piano and violin instruction at the Conservatory of Music in Puerto Rico. But today, as a contemporary multi-instrumentalist composer, Angelica Negron's music is boundless as it flows across swaths of musical landscapes, often dreamy and ethereal, embracing the spirit and sounds of her native Puerto Rico and featuring her own experimentations in micro sound sampling from her eclectic collection of instruments, including grandfather clock mechanisms, tap bells and toy pianos, along with items she picks up in the grocery department. She writes for orchestra, large ensembles, chamber ensembles and soloists. She composes for vocalists, ballet, film scores and operatic works specifically written to be lip-synced by drag queens. She has been commissioned by a slew of organizations, including the Kronos Quartet, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Opera Philadelphia, and the New York Botanical Gardens. She appears on lists like 10 Young Female Composers You Should Know and the 20 Most Innovative Musicians Working Today. The New York Times referred to her as a contemporary music heavyweight, which stands in beautiful counterpoint to the sound of her airy and angelic vocals. Her music has been described as wistfully idiosyncratic and contemplative, and next week she will be in Colombia as one of the two guest composers, along with Meredith Monk, for the School of New Music's annual Mizzou International Composers Festival. And Helica Negron, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. I am so thrilled to get you hold of myself for a little while because in the last 24 hours, I've become a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure being here talking with you. I'm glad you're enjoying the music. So much. And there is so much I want to ask you about that I don't even really know where to start. But <laughs> I am curious whether your teenage self, keen to head out into the big musical world, would have foreseen a time that the rhythms of Puerto Rico and drag queens would circle back into your musical life. I don't think I would in my wildest dreams, <laughs> think that that would be possible. Um, it's something that's happened very naturally, and it makes complete sense that 
I am here and that this is what's happening right now. But I think at that time, I was too close to it to really be able to see that it could be an important part of my life later and my career too. Most of us spend a, a large chunk of our life working out what we don't want to do. And then if we're lucky, at some point, we find a means of communicating authentically with the world around us. And as a composer, who I would say is now in your the fully mature part of your career, tell me about when you found that point of musical authenticity away from the baggage and noise of expectations. Well, that took me a while. I, I struggled with that a lot. I think because my approach, or not my approach, my first encounters with sound actually were like most people that, that study music, it's through technique, through learning how to play an instrument, not exploring sounds like we do in paints and colors and, and different art materials. That's very common in early childhood education. But with sound, most of the time, even in, in those young encounters and in those, even in mommy and me classes, it's very much about learning a steady pulse or something that has to do with technique. So I think that really shaped the way I thought about even composing when I started composing and I discovered it pretty late. I just didn't play anything that was by a loving composer. So I didn't know that was possible, even though I was playing violin since I was young. So it took me a little while to understand what me being curious about all the other instruments and being very kind of unfocused in orchestra and just really mesmerized by the brass section or the percussion and forgetting about my own part that I was supposed to play. And But I didn't know what that meant. So it took me a little while to get there. And when I got there, it made sense. But then at the same time, I studied in a conservatory and in a, an academic environment. So then I felt like I had to kind of prove myself in a way. I was the only woman in the in a small department. I had just switched majors from violin. And I just felt like I needed to write a certain kind of music to be taken seriously and to be thought of as a capital C composer. And now I, it's kind of absurd for me to, <laughs> to think of that. But it's, yeah, I think it really took for me to not write for anyone else or, or like my transition between my master's and my doctorate. I took two years from that. And those two years, it was the first time I was writing music for myself and not showing it to anyone. And that's when everything kind of started to gel. And, and I started embracing a lot of the influences that were um, from other things that were very important to me musically and, and then not really caring so much about what others thought. It's funny that idea of just the word composer and how much baggage is in it, whereas if you use the word songwriter, it feels much more open and fluid. Yeah. So for you, I mean, you are a songwriter as well as a composer. I mean, is it our expectations that we have different ideas of what these two things are or do they feel different to you too? I mean, when I think of songwriter, I think of someone that, in very simple terms, that works a lot with songs and, and with text and, and poetry. And um, and then I used to tend to think that composer was more inclusive in terms of also including the instrumental part of it. But then at the same time, it is used a lot for being more exclusive and mm. for keeping other people that don't make, quote unquote, composerly music Um so I think it's used a lot in our in our systems of of 
a lot of inequality that's embedded in all of our lives, but and certainly in our field, I think there's it's used a lot for gatekeeping and for these people can compose or these people can't. For me, really, if you're making choices around sound, then you're a composer. Doesn't matter if you're making those choices with a string quartet or with a laptop ensemble or with things you recorded on your phone and in an app. If you're making choices about how to organize sounds, for me, you're a composer. And I'm really interested in demystifying that and and hopefully inviting more people in to explore. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that you make those choices every day of your life and that's your livelihood. It could be that it's just something that brings you joy in a few days of your week. And that doesn't make you less of a composer in my eyes. How do you think about your own music? I mean, it's so different. There's so many different genres that you write and compose across. How do you describe your own music? I think it's very open in terms of of the vulnerability of, of sharing personal stories and also open in spaces. I like to think of pieces that go beyond the concert hall and and in which other spaces music can exist in you know, it's always music is always around us, but with intention of a piece existing somewhere that it doesn't have to be constrained to a concert hall. So I think open is is a really important word for me in a, in a way that also feels inviting, hopefully. And um, there's also a playful sensibility, even if the subject matter is something a little more heavy or um, or the piece itself feels a little more contemplative. I think there there's always a playful entry point, at least for me, compositionally. Sometimes you can hear that in the sounds themselves. Sometimes it's a little more hidden, but I I think I create my best work or the best that I'm most excited about when I'm playing and exploring and, and following my curiosity. You are incredibly prolific as a composer. Your website has a very, very long list of compositions from orchestral works to pieces for solo performance, vocal works, full film scores. Plus, you perform and write for your own band, Balloon, who are, I love the quote, they are fluent in the language of global pop, which is completely my language. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your composing practice and how you decide in which musical landscape the sounds in your head will end up. You wake up, there's a song on your head, do you think, oh my goodness, this is a piece for a massive orchestra, or this is for balloon, or this is for a film score? Like, how do you know where it's going to go? Yeah, well, I used to be very intentional about those distinctions before and I to the point that balloon was something that happened even before it started before I started writing music formally on paper so it was to a point that I I kept it so separate that the people that studied with me in the conservatory didn't even know about balloon it was like I would play these shows in DIY (laughs) venues in San Juan and then I would go like wake up in the morning and then go to orchestra or, or do my thing and so I was very intentional about keeping things separate. And I think that was the academic kind of mind frame. And, and mm. I mean, it's gatekeeping at its finest, internalized, you know, <laughs> even in my own work. But I think um, now I really think of things very fluidly. Balloon is something that's collaborative. And then there might be a moment or an opportunity that presents itself in which Balloon could have like an orchestral arrangement for a concert or it could have a string quartet arrangement for for an album which has happened a lot and that's something that is could happen very much in tandem with me working with uh, in an orchestral piece or um around the same time I'm writing music for a documentary or I'm writing a song for myself and I find myself sometimes 
playing a plant with an orchestra in a piece that I wrote or inviting an orchestra or orchestral instruments into Balloon's world or at the same time incorporating a lot of Balloon influences in a piece that I write for an ensemble. So it's just, it's all very fluid right now and that feels right to me and I spend less time anxious than I used to before. (laughs) Well, there were three projects which I would love to have you talk about quickly, even though there are another 15 that I have questions about. But (laughs) you talk about working with plants. So the first is, is not really a project so much as the way that you use vegetables in your music. Talk to me about hooking vegetables up to your synthesizer and how a rambutan sounds different than a turnip. Like, what are you getting out of that? Talk about that vegetable component. Well, I, I write a lot of music that incorporates electronics. And as, as soon as I started doing that, I was presented with the problem of the performance of live electronic music. And I basically just didn't want it to be a laptop and hitting play or a keyboard. Just I wanted to to have something that would also add a visual element to the music and that would make it more engaging and inviting for the people that are looking at listening. So I started exploring with this interface that's called Ototo and basically anything that can electricity can act as a trigger for a sound. So water, vegetables, because they have water in them, are great conductors of electricity. And I just hook alligator clips to leaves or to a cauliflower or to a a container with water and then it's basically acting as an on or off trigger so the shape or the object itself it's not making any difference in terms of the sound but because I've been using that technology for for a while now it does impact a lot the compositional process and my choice of the instrument has a lot to do with if the piece has text, if um, the sounds and textures. I I feel like once I'm writing, I have a very clear idea of what the instrument will look like or needs to look like in order to match the song. So I'm kind of building the instrument or making choices around those. Um, So even though it's not particularly affecting the sound, it could if I have sensors and I've explored that a little bit. But mostly for me... It's about building the instrument that feels like a good match to a certain piece or a certain texture or song. And when you say building the instrument, you mean the selection of plants and vegetables that you have lined up. So I love how you think about the colors and you just think about how they sit together in a row. I mean, it's very aesthetic how you select the vegetables, I think. Yeah, it's. I mean, there is a practical element to it, especially if I'm playing vegetables. Usually I have like my biggest vegetable is my lowest note and then I have radishes or smaller things on top as my sharps are flat so I can visually orient myself. That's more of a practical thing. But then when I'm playing a plant, it's not a layout like a keyboard so then I there's other considerations but but yeah I think the visual component of of live performance it's it's really important and it's not only how you present yourself and, and what you wear and how you talk or your demeanor but also what are you playing and the gestures that are conveying those sounds particularly when those sounds are coming from a computer ultimately or electronic and there's this kind of disembodiment that happens innately because of the nature of the instrument. Mm. Well, if people want to see your vegetable instrument in action, they should check out the music page of your website, angelicanegron.com and watch the great sound sessions, which are awesome. The next project I want to ask you about, which is so full of 
contemplative elegy that it moved me to tears. And it's one of those works that I don't think will ever leave my head. It's a short opera you wrote called The Island We Made, filmed by director Matthew Plachek, in which a drag queen, Sasha Velour, who won season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race, she lip syncs to the recorded soprano vocals of Eliza Bag. And it's so melancholic and so beautiful, it made my heart ache. Tell us a little bit about that work and and how it came about. The Island We Made was commissioned from Opera Philadelphia. It was one of those pandemic projects. They commissioned four pieces that were meant to be seen on the virtual stage. So not filming staged operas, but really thinking of the film as the main medium for it. And I've been writing songs for drag queens for the past four years. It's part of a a larger opera idea that I've been working on. And it's a very personal project inspired a lot by my childhood and and being surrounded by drag queens when I was growing up in Puerto Rico and and also um, intersections of identity and and illusion and, and just exploring deeper the complexities of that. And And when Opera Philadelphia approached me, I thought it would be a good opportunity to explore that in a piece that is connected to the themes that I've been working on, but it's also its own thing. It's kind of self-contained, this 10-minute opera, and I and I wanted to make something that was small in scale in terms of opera length, but at the same time, I wanted it to feel like gigantic and enormous um, and the way it fills you. And, and I was very grateful and, and lucky to find two incredible collaborators, um, Matthew Plasek, who's a brilliant filmmaker uh, that really took what I wrote and, and made something incredibly moving and beautiful out of it. And then Sasha Velour, um, who I've been a huge fan of for, for many years and I'm really grateful she said yes to being a part of this. So we just talked about our relationships with our mothers, went really deeply, very quickly. And out of that, I wrote a song and Matthew, a treatment, and we filmed in Staten Island, and it's a very special project that's really dear to my heart. And I'm and I'm really glad when I hear that it's also moving to other people like you. So it's not available for viewing right now. It was available last year for a limited time through Opera Philadelphia. That's correct. Yeah. But what are your plans? How, when, or how might people be able to see it? Well, I'm um, right now in conversations with Matthew and Sasha and, and see how, what we can do to make this more available. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll, we'll have this more accessible in the next few months, hopefully. I hope so too. Finally, I just want to ask you about a film score you wrote for a documentary called Landfall, directed by Cecilia Aldarondo and released in 2020, which explores everyday life in post-Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico. And this must have been a project that was incredibly emotional for you to, to revisit that time. And I I wonder how much your music that you wrote for the film score is in response to the filmscape that Cecilia created versus your own memories of that time. Yeah, um, well, it's all kind of intertwined. I think there's it's it's hard to separate the two, but I I will say that Cecilia she has a beautiful very poetic way of sharing stories, and I was very much inspired by that. And as we started working on it together, I knew that I wanted to record in Puerto Rico, that I wanted to record with Puerto Rican musicians, and that I did not want to write the typical film score in which I would just sit down, watch the movie, and then write some music.
most of the score was done in a way of me asking the musicians, what does rain sound like in your instrument? And what does rain sound like when it's falling on top of bottles of water? So kind of scaffolding the process in a way that just touched on the things that are important to the documentary and finding different ways to tell that story that connected also to my experience. Because I, I live in in years that I'm, I've been out of the island. So even though all my family and close friends are still in the island and experience it, I experienced the hurricane through their eyes and I was not physically present there. So there's also a distance that I'm really aware of as well. So just kind of being hyper aware of that and sensitive to that. And what does that do to the way, the way we tell stories as well? And Helica, I don't want you to go without giving a quick mention again to your band Balloon. Your album came out in 2018. It was named as one of Rolling Stone magazine's top 10 Latin albums of the year. How would you describe the music of Balloon? Balloon um, is a tropical, electronic, really fun project that has been together for a long time. It was started by me and my husband, and, and it's now a collective of friends, mostly Puerto Ricans, non-Puerto Ricans that have joined the family and are now honorary Puerto Ricans. It's very influenced by folk music from Puerto Rico, by electronic music that we love, and also by reggaeton and dembow rhythms. Yeah, so it's, it just feels like a a family and and like home. <laughs> and let's go out with a track from Balloon's album. This is La Nueva Ciudad.
I love it. Well, Angelica Negron will be in Colombia next week for the Mizzou International Composers Festival, where she will be one of the two guest composers working with this year's eight selected resident composers. Angelica's compositions will be played by Mizzou students on Monday, July the 25th, by the Mizzou New Music Ensemble on Wednesday the 27th, and by Alarm Will Sound and members of Mizzou Choirs on Thursday the 28th. You can also find a ton of Angelica's music and links on her website at angelicanegron.com and her band Balloon's 2018 album Prisma Tropical is on Spotify, or at least some tracks are. Angelica, thank you so much for making time to chat today. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. When this year's Mizzou International Composers Festival opens next week, one of its eight resident composers, Nico Schrader, will be in a unique position, having helped to oversee the program for a few months after its previous managing director, Jacob Gottlieb, moved back to Louisville, and also being one of this year's eight resident composers. This is the first time in three years that the festival returns as an in-person event and in a nod to our ongoing pandemic world, the festival will also be available online as a series of live streamed concerts. 
This year, the festival received 532 applications from composers in 49 countries, from which only five were chosen. Plus, there are three additional applicants whose participation at the festival had been thwarted by the past two pandemic years, thus rounding out the number of resident composers to eight. The eight hail from Italy, Singapore, Thailand, Colombia, as in the country, as well as California, Portland, Oregon, Illinois, and representing Columbia, Missouri, though originally from Michigan, my guest, Nico Schrader. Nico holds a master's in music degree from the University of Missouri and back in 2019 was awarded the university's highest composition award, the Sinkfeld Prize. In addition to being a composer, Nico is an audio engineer, plays guitar and trombone and also sings, has a polka band, the Beer Keller Boys Umpa Band, his own label imprint, Wretched Toad Music, and two cats called Johnny Cash and June Carter. Nico, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you, Diana. Thanks for having me. So according to your website, your artistic practices reflect your Midwest upbringing through, quote, rugged joy, community focus and wry humour. And I'm wondering what rugged joy and wry humour sound like, because there are definitely days when that would be the perfect accompaniment to my morning tea. Oh, sure. Yeah, I grew up playing music in the um, basements of Grand Rapids, Michigan, playing rock and roll or punk or whatever you call it. And we we had a, a band we played in and I was... Uh, we didn't play too many shows and we were always accused of sounding a bit too happy for the, <laughs> for the scene. And I think on the classical side of things, maybe that's more reflected. I grew up in a small farming town in Iowa before moving to Michigan. And I think the, the community really pulls together around these things. And I don't know if it's the terrible winters or the, you know, the, the hard work in the, the farming communities, but something about bringing the community together and uplifting each other through music has always been an important part of my musical identity. You grew up in Michigan, uh, mostly, and I believe you have a twin brother, Lucas, is that right? Yeah. He's also a musician. That's right. So tell me about the music that surrounded you growing up and, and what your influences were. As you're definitely not a composer who fits neatly in any one pigeonhole. Yeah, we, we move in a lot of directions, and, and Lucas was great growing up to sort of explore some different corners of, of music making. We joined the public school's band around the same time, that we got our first guitars and bass guitars and things of that nature. So even from the get-go, it was somewhat divergent in that we were learning at home by rote and and writing our own songs and playing some rock music um, while we were sitting in the, the band classroom playing euphonium, learning notated music and sort of getting in touch with that side of, of music making. Were your parents musical? They were in somewhat non-traditional ways. My mom... Uh, is a a wonderful guitarist, although she doesn't play too much these days. And my dad likes to joke that though he can't carry a tune, he has a great singing voice. So growing up around the (laughs) church, that was a part of our upbringing. And he's a, a scholar of history and took a liking to early music. So there were uh, recorders and other historic instruments around our house growing up. Well, you write music with a very wide scope of references, including field recordings of bridges, historic chess moves, parking garages you dislike, a black bear you met when you were 10 years old and terrified, and pizza, (laughs) which is a pretty eclectic set of inspirations. How do you organise all your musical ideas into such a variety of projects? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and it's it's a challenge. Um, 
usually when I'm when I'm approaching writing a piece for another ensemble, there is some sort of conceptual bend to it. And usually that requires a lot of of mulling over which which idea might fit which box for which ensemble. On the rock side of things with the pizza or the the trips to the mountains or whatever, in my mind, maybe those are even separate things just because they're expressed so differently and the compositional process is so different. So it's maybe easier to keep keep those apart. But uh, it certainly is a challenge and I have a nice big book of of concepts that I then get to decide which ones I want to tease out and which ones are best left uh, in the draft book. What would fill your heart with more joy, getting a commission from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra or getting a billboard hit? Ooh, <laughs> billboard. No offense to the Chicago Symphony. Uh, I, I feel like I've always been a, a chamber music writer. Maybe part of it's that background with the small ensembles and with co-composing and in rock bands and things like that. Uh, so writing for Alarm Will Sound for the festival was a, a great challenge because it's one of the larger groups I've written for recently um, and sort of expanding those ideas from a few instruments to, to loads of instruments and excellent players. Right. So moving on to the Composers Festival, each of the chosen composers had to submit three scores of original works with contrasting instrumentation and also recordings of those works. And once chosen, each composer then has to compose a brand new work that is at least eight minutes long and is written specifically for the instrumentation of the, I believe, 16-piece new music ensemble Alarm Will Sound. So tell us about the work you are going to be premiering on Saturday. July the 30th. Sure. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I was selected to participate in the festival in in 2020, which obviously took a sideways turn and got rescheduled. And then 2021, I had to defer for personal reasons. So I've been working on this piece for several years. And I had started writing it right around the beginning of the pandemic, which was very tough since my musical practice is so co-creative and I'm so motivated by working with other people. So so getting in the, the computer was difficult and meeting people on Zoom. So really, this piece came at a time when a lot of the works I was approaching were very concept oriented. The chess piece was my thesis for the university. And that was around the time that I was doing the, the field recordings of the Mackinac Bridge. But I was really having a hard time getting notes on the page. And I decided sometimes a piece of music just has to be a piece of music. So my piece, Contrapunctus, or song, really came from musical. Um, the, the impetus was musical. I was exploring how to stretch musical parameters, melody, entropy, ensemble blend versus disparate elements, and sort of pushing that into more of a, a song form, which is something that I'm much more familiar with with a background in in rock and folk music and then stretching that to like you said greater than eight minutes which obviously adds some durational extremes compared to your four minute billboard hit so when i listen to it should i as jacob gottlieb used to advise me think of it as a soundscape or think of it as music Ooh, i don't know if this is a soundscape piece um, you'll hear a lot of the direct influence of groove and time and then later the displacement of time. So I think maybe maybe my piece is an easy one to approach as music 
Whereas many of the pieces that we'll hear, I'm sure, will will take on more soundscape elements. <laughs> right. The music wants to make me happy. So what happens for you next? I mean, you've just got married. Do you live here? Are you staying here? Do you work at the university? Will you be leaving? Are you finished with your degree now? Yeah, it's a great question. I finished my degree in 2020, which is a really horrible time to finish a, a music degree. But I was lucky that there was so much. I mean, the studio at the university just got swamped with work and we don't have a lot of audio tech training or we didn't. That's starting to change. So I, I pieced together a number of jobs. I was at the Boys and Girls Club teaching music technology. I was at the university. I work for Lindervox Sound, which is a independent studio in town that used to do all the university contracts. But I'm actually, um, we're packing up right now because my wife and I are moving to the Netherlands in like three weeks for, I decided to go back to school. We'll, we'll see. I, I'm doing an, an artist certificate at the conservatory of, in The Hague, and it's, it was a difficult decision because I had applied for the, the Fulbright funding and, and some other fellowships. I didn't receive one, but we had saved so much money not doing anything during the pandemic and just working that we said, well, you know what, we'll go for it. Yeah, so we're, we're in full-on panic, move-to-Europe mode, plus festival. So it's going to be a wild, uh, wild few weeks for sure. Oh, my goodness. Well, that is so exciting. Well, I don't want you to go without playing a little snippet of your music. So tell us a little about the piece you have selected for us, and then we'll take a listen. Yeah, so this is the Ballad of the Young King Gambrinus. This is a uh, was a very formative and important piece in sort of exploring an element of my identity that doesn't often make it to the stage concert music I write, which is my German-American heritage. I collaborated with a string quartet called Invoke from Austin, Texas, who refer to themselves as a singing, bowed, and fretted string quartet. So nothing from the usual classical tradition. They double banjo and mandolin, they all sing, and they play the traditional string quartet instruments. And this takes the folktale that is sort of broadly European, but was refined in the beer factories of Wisconsin about a alleged patron saint of beer, King Gambrinus, though he was neither the saint nor a king in any any real sense. And he uh, has a statue in the Pabst factory in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where my great-great-grandparents worked when they first immigrated to the United States. And so the snippet I've chosen is right in the middle of the narrative. I didn't want to give away the end. It's a classic man down on his luck makes a deal with the devil type story and Gambrinus has just met the devil and has traded his soul for the recipe for beer and great strength and all these other perks that the the devil disguised as a businessman has decided to give him. And here it is. With this golden ale you'll have new strength, new vigor, and new wit and with it you'll have the means to pay the bills. Oh, young
streams of feats of strength Pulls Excalibur from its sheath Ran the bowls and invented 13 varieties of beer He ran to the sea and left right in Stayed submerged for a week Only emerged once he had drunk in a number of feet You can hear more of the ballad of the young King Gambrinus and its thrilling conclusion and Nico's other diverse compositions on his website at nicodschrader.com. And you can hear the world premiere of his work, Contrapunctus Song, at the Missouri Theatre on Saturday, the 30th of July. Nico, I am excited to see what you do next and I hope you will come back on Speaking of the Arts when we have more time to explore your extensive music catalogue. But for today, thank you so much for making time to chat. Thanks so much for having me. 30 years ago, I definitively left home, as in I left my country. I ended a long relationship, handed over the very last key on my keychain, left almost all my possessions except what would fit in a backpack at my parents' house and got on a plane to Hong Kong, where I knew no one and had no job. I think of it as the point at which I became the adult me. I left the world I knew to find another, and having jumped off that cliff once and found I could fly, I knew I could always do it again, which is why a work by my next guest, composer Cassie Wheeland, really spoke to me because it is called I Left One World to Find Another and I Can Do It Again, which was inspired by the complexity of nostalgia and Cassie's relationship with her own hometown of Normal, Illinois. Cassie composes instrumental, vocal and electroacoustic music and seeks to explore through her work human connection, interaction and expression. Her work has been described as having loads of sonic personality and that her visceral compositions send chills up your spine. And next week, Cassie will be in Colombia as one of the eight resident composers for this year's Mizzou International Composers Festival, where a new composition by Cassie, written specifically for the festival, will be premiered at the Missouri Theatre on Saturday, July the 30th, played by the internationally acclaimed new music ensemble Alarm will sound. And Cassie Wheeland is my next guest this evening, joining me from her home in Brooklyn. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Cassie. Hi, Diana. Thank you for having me. When I listen to I Left the World, I Knew to Find Another and I Can Do It Again, my mind's eye takes me back to the plane ride to Hong Kong, looking down through clouds and undecipherable landscapes and trying to reconcile the feelings I had of elation and panic that were sweeping through me. Tell me about what this work means to you. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because as I was writing this work, I was imagining my plane ride from Illinois to New York, where I live now. And it's something I'd never done before, moving away from home. And it was all very exciting and terrifying. And, you know, you get a lot of complex feelings from missing 
a place that you know doesn't suit you anymore, or at least mm. for the time being. Right. So you grew up in the middle of Illinois, surrounded in every which direction by farmland <laughs> and fields, and now you live in a major East Coast metropolis. How do you think the geography of this new home has influenced your compositions in recent years? As you mentioned, growing up, I was always surrounded by open sky and flat land. And I think after moving to New York, I didn't realize how much it would visually affect me seeing obstacles in my direction, because I'm so used to seeing a, an open horizon and seeing all these, all these buildings and obstructions in my way. I felt, I felt almost trapped uh, at first, at least. But I started to appreciate and get more comfortable with complexity, either seeing complexity or hearing complexity with crazy cityscape of horns honking and, and people talking. And I think that appreciation has really both inspired my work and also made me want to write maybe something more simple, basically. Um, I want to hear something clean and consistent for, for half an hour, an hour even. So do you think your work has got sonically more spacious as you've been in a more built-up environment almost? I think so. I think uh, especially harmonically, it's it's gotten a lot more spacious. I like to focus on one chord at a time and really move slowly harmonically. But texturally, I've started incorporating, I'd say, like crunchier textures. Hmm. Take me back to young Cassie at school. What were you listening to musically? And what was your idea of a composer at that time? Oh, my gosh. I don't even think that I thought of composers until I was at least 17, 18. I was really shy as a kid, very quiet. And I loved, uh, I listened to a lot of pop stars on the radio. <laughs> I listened to a lot of Britney Spears and any 2000s pop CD I could get my hands on. But um, when I got to college is when I started learning about composers. And I actually didn't start writing until the age of 20, because I didn't think that girls, that women could be composers. It just mm. never crossed my mind. And when did you decide the field of new music was where you wanted to be with your music? It's sort of just where I landed, where I ended up. The mentor that I had in college who taught me how to write, Dr. Magnuson, he was the one who introduced me to all this music. And I got to listen to women composers like me, like Julia Wolf and like Meredith Monk, who's also going to be at Mizzou. And I was so inspired by these women that I just I looked at them and I thought, I want to do that. It's interesting that the when you think about the world of songwriting, it's largely open to anyone. But once you attach the label composer to the process of writing music, then, like you say, a lot of young women don't think that that's something that's for them. And suddenly mm -hmm. there's a lot of extra baggage and gatekeepers and expectations and the world narrows quite considerably mm -hmm. to being mostly white men and academic spaces. So talk to me about, in this day and age now, being a female composer and what being a composer rather than a songwriter means to you? To me, similar 
comparison is is like a cook versus a chef. We think of chefs like working professionally in the in the workforce as as men and we often think of composers as as men just cuz it it sounds more elevated. It sounds more intellectual, but to me songwriters and composers are the same people, you know, we're all just trying to create something for other people and I I used to not like calling myself a composer. I thought that it sounded too egotistical or too pretentious, but I've I've learned to embrace it because I think once we we normalize those phrases that seem gatekeepy, um, mm. then they become more real, more realistic. A few years ago, you produced a body of works called Anatomy, which comprised a series of solo works for various instruments, each work based on a different part of the body. So you have works called eyelid, lung, hands, mouth, heart, in which you seek to explore how the characteristic of a body part can innately hold a subtle story. So I'm going to play just a tiny clip from eyelid. And then I would love to have you tell us a little bit about this series and what you mean by a body part holding its own subtle story. So this series started with one piece, with uh, the piece Hands for clarinet. And I started writing it because I had a friend who asked me to write a solo for them, and I did. And after that, I just wanted to write more pieces for more friends. And (laughs) that original piece was inspired by how detailed people can be, um, even visually. And when you look at somebody's hands, you can see how their nails are kept, and possibly what kind of work they do, the gestures that they make when they talk. And those tiny little intricacies can can say a lot about a person. And I, I wanted to keep going with that idea and potentially create a whole, excuse the pun, but a whole body <laughs> of work <laughs> that uh, represented that idea. So tell us about eyelid specifically. Why eyelid? So while I was writing this work, I was thinking of, you know, an eyelid fluttering back and forth. And I I originally was thinking of calling it I, but I love the idea of being so specific about something that you don't usually think of. Um, With your eyelid, it moves, it moves subconsciously. uh, You don't really think about blinking unless you start thinking about it and then you think about (laughs) doing it. But the idea of subconscious movement was the driving force for the form of the piece. Well, let's move on to your work for the festival here in Cambia. Your new work, the world premiere of which will be next Saturday the 30th, is called Consolation Prize. Tell us about this work. So I 
I was feeling a little moody when I wrote this work. I was thinking about ambitions and goals and how it is terrifying sometimes to go for what you want, either within your career or within your relationship. And it seems like each time you heal or progress in in a certain way, it just gets harder. And the lyrics in the piece are, if we fall, is it worth it? And I'll actually be singing with Alarm Ball Sound in the piece. I have a little vocal electronics set up. So during the piece, you'll hear the words, if we fall, was it worth it? What do you hope to get out of your time at the Mizzou International Composers Festival? I am just very excited to work face-to-face with musicians at this time. I'm so excited to be in a room with so many incredible musicians who work with living composers regularly, who know what the collaboration process is like. And I'm just, I'm just so excited to create this piece together, even though, you know, the score is made. I think a lot of the creation of a work happens with the rehearsal and with the people that you're working with. So I'm very much looking forward to that part. Well, I want to end with a clip from the piece of music we talked about earlier called Hometown. The work is in two parts. Part one is titled If I Change, Will I Still Be Okay? And part two is I Left One World to Find Another and I Can Do It Again. Any additional thoughts you would like to share about this work, Cassie? This work was originally a little bit of a branch out for me because it incorporated electronics and incorporated my own voice. And this is a work that I'm, I'm super proud of because it, it sort of launched this whole second branch of my career for me, which is incorporating my own voice into works, which is something I was very afraid to do for a long time. So I'm very thankful for that and I hope people enjoy it. Here it is then. I left one world to find another and I can do it again by Cassie Wheeland, which you can hear on the watch listen page of Cassie's website, CassieWheeland.com.
My guest has been composer Cassie Wheeland, one of the eight resident composers whose work will be performed by the internationally acclaimed new music ensemble Alarm Will Sound at this year's eight world premieres evening at the Missouri Theatre on Saturday, July the 30th. You can find Cassie's music on her website at CassieWheeland.com as well as on SoundCloud, Spotify and Bandcamp. Cassie, it is lovely to have you home in the Midwest for a weekend. <laughs> Thanks for making time to chat. Thank you so much for having me. And now for something completely different. A handbag! A handbag! Yes, Lady Bracknell, I was in uh, handbag. If ever a play could be identified in just two words, it is surely Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest and the delivery of the words a handbag by the formidable Lady Bracknell. The words have been delivered by many great actresses, Dame Edith Evans, Dame Judi Dench, Stockard Channing, Dame Maggie Smith, Dame Penelope Keith, to name but a few. Makes one wonder if the role is a prerequisite for becoming a dame. And there are so very many interpretations of and choices for its delivery. Disgust, outrage, surprise, condescension, that it must be one of surely the most pliant lines in theatre. And yet it is just one small scene in a play that is full of Oscar Wilde witticisms, satire and, of course, farce. The play's full title is The Importance of Being Earnest, a trivial comedy for serious people. And when it premiered in London in February 1895, it was the pinnacle of Wilde's career, but paradoxically also the start of his demise, a demise that would ultimately land him in jail for two years, see himself exiled to Paris, and within five years, his death from meningitis at the age of just 46. But his work has endured, and this weekend, The Importance of Being Earnest opens at Maplewood Barn, directed by my guest, Morgan Dennehy. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Morgan. Hi, Diana. How are you? I am well. I wish we had longer to talk about this play as it is such a classic. Two friends, <laughs> Jack and Algernon, fall in love with two women, Gwendolyn and Cecily, both of whom declare they could only truly love a man if his name were Ernest. Plus, there's an overbearing mother, Lady Bracknell, the small, socially unacceptable matter of Jack having been found as a baby in a handbag, and ample amounts of duplicity, invented people, and the mocking of Victorian society. So... What made you want to direct it rather than be in it? Well, first of all, I think I've had my fill of being on stage for a while after last summer. And my 
single attempt at being on stage with Charlie Brown this earlier this summer. But as someone who has always loved witty comedy and satire, I tend to read Romeo and Juliet as a Shakespearean satire on romance. And if you haven't read it that way, you should try it sometime. <laughs> um, the importance of being earnest has always been one of my favorites. I love the snappy, witty dialogue, the fast-paced movement, and it reminds me so much of some of my favorite modern TV and movies, most of whom are done by Aaron Sorkin, so The West Wing and The American President and A Few Good Men. So I really enjoy that, you know, fast-paced kind of wit. It's hard to imagine all the characters in the play with anything other than English accents, but that is very tough to pull off in the middle of Missouri. So tell me about your production and what choices you made about setting and time period and accents. Well, it's kind of Victorian adjacent, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's only so much you can do in the middle of July outside in, in mid-Missouri. So rather than corset my ladies and have my gentlemen in like 12 different layers, we went for more more of a cosplay steampunk kind of look. So it's very, very subtle and very comfortable. At least I hope it's comfortable. I can't vouch for my my people. They'll have to tell me after we open this week. But <laughs> I just wanted it to look Victorian instead of be Victorian. So the other problem is when you attempt accents, especially for people within, you know, areas that already kind of have a thick accent to begin with, you end up with 12 different accents. Mm. None of them seem to mesh. And it always sounds a little jarring. So I just asked my actors to speak as concisely and clearly as possible and at least give it kind of an upper crust sound rather than a mid-Missouri twang or a English accent. <laughs> well, I am relieved. Thank you for not doing English accents. It always makes me happy when I hear that they're not going on. I think there are interesting bookends in this play in that Wilde is poking fun at Victorian sensibility and their preference for earnestness as a cornerstone of society. And now, 130 years later, we are very focused on being very precise and intentional about how we use language. And sometimes it can feel that we are, as Algernon reproaches Jack for, very busy being serious about everything. It's so true. So for you, what elements of this play really resonate today? What is showing its age? My degree is in British literature, and the modernist period is one of my favorite parts of that genre. And, you know, Oscar Wilde is kind of the start of that and the ending of the Victorian sensibility. And so I could pontificate for like an hour and a half, if you let me. When I was <laughs> writing my director's letter, I went through several drafts because it kept coming up like an academic paper. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what we want. <laughs> So hopefully it walks a nice line. But I mean, some of the language is still fairly archaic. I went through and did a lot of cuts to try and pull out some of the absolutely nonsensical, or at least what seems to be nonsensical allusions and things that modern audiences might not get. But as far as the concept is concerned, Oscar Wilde, one of the brilliant things about his plays is his satire aside, sense of character and chemistry among his actors. And that really translates beautifully to the modern stage. And my actors have just had it since day one. So that's been wonderful. And of course, in our current climate, there's still the uh, um, obsession with class and um, the have and the have nots. And I think that lampooning that still translates well. 
to the current time. Well, The Importance of Being Earnest opens at Maplewood Barn tonight and runs for two weekends, closing on July the 31st. All performances start at 8pm and are outside, so bring plenty of bug spray, a chair or blanket, and if you're like me, a chilled bottle of wine. To find out more, visit maplewoodbarn.com. And Morgan Dennehy, thanks for the quick chat about an awesome show. Always happy to be here, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, composers Angelica Negron, Nico Schrader, and Cassie Wheeland, and Maplewood Barn Theatre Director Morgan Dennehy. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!